He's so good. He's worthy of our praise. I love it when God comes alive in the praises of his people. When we go before him, thanksgiving, glorifying his name. Really, he's what this is all about. It's not about anything else. It's all about the Lord. It's all about him, our relationship with him. This morning, as we take a look at Matthew chapter 20, we're going to see that God has uh, here in the 40th parable that we come to in the book of uh, Matthew, we're going to see that God has some very exciting things to lay out for us this morning. If you join me as we, uh, as we read through Matthew chapter 20, just the first few verses, just uh, come along with me. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out around the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. So he answered and said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, and the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. So when the first came, they supposed that they would receive even more. And they likewise received a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and he said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father God, we just, as we come before your word this morning, Lord, we just desire to be enlightened and instructed through your Holy Spirit. God, that you would just make this uh, passage of Scripture come alive in our eyes, Lord, as we seek to honor you in it. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father. And above all, Lord, I pray that your word, your voice echoes through that which we do this morning, that you be glorified in this place. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this parable, there's this parable, this particular parable, lays out for us about four different things that we're going to see as we go through it. And the first thing that we need to talk about when we look at this parable is this concept about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. It's one of the characteristics of God. You know, you have his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnibenevolence, his sovereignty. These are characters of God. They're irrefutable. We, we don't get to put them away because we don't like them. But they are all 
simultaneously the character of God. And one of those is his sovereignty. And he brings it out in this story very well when he says to the man, this is my vineyard. I hired you. Can't I do what I want to do? I mean, we all live in America, right? Most of us feel the same way about our, our place, don't we? Our property is mine. If I want to do this, I'll do it. If I want to... Hear ringing? I just like to make sure it's not just me. About that time a voice comes. Anyways, <clears throat> what we want to do is we take a look at the, at the sovereignty of God. It's His. It's His. Listen to what Scripture says. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to flip over there with me, you're welcome to. If you can, if you can beat me there, but I'm going to be pretty quick because I'm cheating. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, this is what it has to say. Now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. God begins through Isaiah the prophet to speak about this vineyard, this vineyard that, that God is the possessor of. He tells us what it is in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. The Lord lays out the concept that the vineyard is a, is a house of Israel. And beyond that, when we come to the Psalms, doesn't the psalmist declare that the world is all his? It's all his, right? The fullness, it's all his. Everything is his. The world, all that is made. Everything that exists around us. So because God owns it all, he has the right to rule sovereignly over that which he has created. God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means simply, one, that God is in control. It means that God is in control. Secondly, it lays out for us, not only is God in control, but he can do what he wants to do. He's sovereign. He can do his will, whatever his will would be. He can do that. He can act in that way. But it also means he will always do what is right. All of those concepts are found with us in the pages of Scripture when we deal with God's sovereignty. In this story laid out before us, this parable, which means to, to cast something down before a natural event so that you can match it together. See, here's the illustration. Remember, last week we were talking about it ended. The Scripture ended. Peter, remember, he was saying, Lord, what will we have? We've left all to follow you. And so the Lord said, hey... No one that has left house, mother, brother, father, or any of those things will not receive greater here and the, the really important part, eternal life. But then he goes on to say, for many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And to illustrate that, he goes into this story. The story very simply illustrates first and last, last and first. He talks to a group of guys, right? And he says, hey, I'll hire you for a denarius. A denarius is just a Greek word that means a day's wages. So it doesn't matter what you translate it to. If you have old King James, it says a penny. If you have a new respised, or new respised, that's not exactly what I meant. <laughs> new revised standard, it says a shilling. Depending on what you're reading, the concept is a day's wage. He said, you come work for me. Now the work day went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours. And so he called these, they agreed. Yeah, right on, we'll come work. I want you to picture it just like a crew. Maybe you've been, you've seen it. 
Coming from uh, the L.A. area, I would see this all the time. The guys would gather at a corner in the, in the city. They don't have a job. They've looked for a job. They don't have a job, so they wait. They're day laborers. And the guys would drive by those day laborers. They'd see a group of them, and they'd pull up, and they'd oh, roll down the window and say, Hey, I need eight guys. Give me eight guys. And so eight guys jump in the back of the truck or climb in the van or get in the whatever he's got there for them, and they go off and work. And he makes a deal for them. That's that day. You got paid that day. This is the day you're working. I'm not guaranteeing you tomorrow. And so they would go. But there would still be other guys at the corner. This is the exact story that Jesus is telling. He says they went and he took the guys and he said, Hey, guys, I'm going to pay you an honest day's wage for the day you work. So they come and they agree. But the scripture lays out for us, as we look at Matthew chapter 20, it says not only after they had agreed, it says he went about the third hour. The third hour, now it's 9 a.m. So he went and picked up the first guys at 6 a.m. At 9 a.m. he goes back, he finds more. And so he says to them, now to them he says, come work for me and I'll give you what's right. You had to trust in his integrity. The integrity of the man who was hiring you. So they climb in. They didn't really know what they were working for. But he says, hey, I'll do right by you. I'm going to do what's right. I'll give to you what's right. And it says, he went out again in the sixth hour. Now it's noon. The day's half spent. And he finds more guys. And then he goes again in the ninth hour. Now it's three o'clock. And he says to those guys, hey, come on, come work for me, and I'll pay you what's right. Now, it has nothing to do, the Bible does not say, the other guys weren't getting the job done. Actually, the parable doesn't say nothing about what the job was and why they were working. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is, over and over and over again, we see God coming, looking for more. Finally, the 11th hour, there's only one hour left. And he hires those guys and he brings them. And he says, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. Because God always does what's right. God is sovereign. He is in control. Everything that happens in this world passes through his hands. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 says, Psalm 135 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Folks, there's no hiding behind the sovereignty of God or trying to escape the sovereignty of God. Yes, on the day when the tsunami struck, God was in control. You have to learn to deal with that. But you have to deal with that in this way. God only does what's right. Now, we've talked before. I've shared with you a little story that comes out of Japan about our inability to know what's good. Do we know what's good? We think we know what's good, right? We think we know what's good based on how we feel when something happens. But we really have no idea. Does everybody remember the story? You're not going to make me tell it again, right? The story goes, farmer got a horse. Yeah, everybody knows, right? Okay, good. Farmer got a horse. We can't always tell what's good. We think it's a blessing, but we're not sure. But listen, Scripture tells us, one, God is sovereign. He is in control of every single event that occurs. Every single event that occurs on earth, God is sovereign over. Two, God always does what's right. 
always does what's right. There's no darkness in the Lord. There's no wrong in the Lord. Listen, Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says this. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. By your will they exist. The things that happen, happen according to his will. He has a right to do what he wants to do. And he always does what is right. Whenever we think about the sovereignty of God, I would be remiss in coming to the sovereignty of God and avoiding Romans chapter 9. So go to Romans chapter 9 because we're not running around from anything. The word of God is living and powerful. Every scripture given there by divine inspiration and it is good for us. We don't have to be afraid of any of the word. The word is good. It's alive. It wants to work what it wants to work. And we need to understand God has a right to do whatever he does. For he is God. It's not, I didn't say it would be easy. But it's good. Here's what he says. Romans chapter 9 verse 14. Romans chapter 9 verse 14. We know this is a very Jewish book because they ask questions in it a lot. And if you've ever had a Jewish friend, they got a lot of questions. Here's what he says. What shall we say then in chapter 9 verse 14? What shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now you are just thinking it. What do you mean? God's in, if God's in control of everything and all the bad that happens on the, on the world somehow passes through his hands. Then we ask the question, is God evil? Is God unrighteous? Is God wrong in what he does? That's the question that they're asking. And the answer from the Apostle Paul is certainly not. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now the emphasis in scripture in the sovereignty of God is always on the mercy of God. You need to understand that. The emphasis throughout scripture on the sovereignty of God is always on his mercy. It means I didn't really deserve anything God did for me. I didn't deserve his son. I don't deserve the love with which he loves me. I don't deserve any of it. He gives it to me based on his mercy, his goodness, his love, his omnibenevolence. He gives it to me based on those things. So it is not of him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the scripture said to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Remember Pharaoh, right? He went to battle against God, right? Let my people go. No, I will not let your people go. Let them go. No, that's the wrong song. The idea is, (laughs) he's saying, hey, let my people go. Moses going to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not. Pharaoh would not. We read the story. Pharaoh lays out for us, especially when we understand the language is coming from, that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God stiffens his heart. Now, listen, in light of that, keep that concept in your mind. Keep it fresh. Don't lose it yet. Stay with me. It goes on and he says, the Lord declares in, in uh, Romans nine eighteen. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. So you say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? You're just thinking the same thing. Well, if Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, and finally God hardened his heart, Pharaoh's heart, and stuck him in it, and if God knew before he ever made Pharaoh that Pharaoh was going to spend his whole life in arguing against God or fighting against God, why did he ever make him? 
Why did he ever create them? Oh, remember I told you, you have to keep all the characteristics of God together. His sovereignty along with his omnibenevolence. What's omnibenevolence? It means that God is all love. Not that God loves. That he is all love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. For God is love. Period. God is love. In the sovereignty of God, he can do whatever he wants to do. In the love of God, he creates Pharaoh and presents to Pharaoh the opportunity to do what he will. Make your choice, Pharaoh. God already knows what it's going to be. But in his love, he gives Pharaoh choice. He gives Pharaoh the opportunity. He gives him the chance. No man will stand before God and say, I never had a chance. Just because I know what you're going to do doesn't mean I controlled you in doing it. I watch my little children. Think about your little kids. And you see them walk over and look over their shoulder to check. Is mom or dad watching? You ever see them do that? And you know. Maybe you just said, no more cookies. And so they walk and they do that. Now you, at that moment, know exactly what they're going to do. Don't you? I know exactly what they're going to do. My kids thought they were sneaky. But I am the king of sneak. They could not out-sneak their father. <laughs> so they come into the... I remember, we're getting ready for church one day, and I see I, JC, my oldest. Like, JC, we never did make the church this morning. You'll understand why in a minute. JC, no cookies. No more. We got to get ready for church. Okay. You know, so then I see him looking and going into the kitchen. There's no reason for him to be in the kitchen. There's nothing in there but the cookies. What are you doing in the kitchen, boy? But I let him be because he, he's going to make the choice. Right now he is making the choice. I want a whooping or I don't want a whooping. <laughs> if I just ran in there and whooped him before he made the choice... I never gave him a chance. Now I know what he's going to do. So I told you I'm the king of sneak. So I went around the other side and I'm looking around the corner and I see him pull a chair up. Climb up on the little chair with his little bitty legs. No concern for personal safety at all. All he can think of, cookie cookies. <laughs> and he climbs up on that counter and he, and he reaches up. Like, oh, he gets way up there because, you know, we put him up high with the idea... Not to kill our children by the falling from heights, but to keep them out of the cookies. No, no, he got up there, and he got them cookies, and he pulled them down, and I'm, I'm watching. Now I'm fully in, in the doorway. I'm watching. And he reaches in, and he opens up the bag, and right about that time, I go, what are you doing? Now that turned out not to be the smartest thing I could have done. Because you know what happens when you get caught in something like that. What are you doing? And he closed the bag real quick and he just jumped. <laughs> now he's standing on top, of the, on top of the counter. His little body was not ready for the price he was willing to pay for those cookies. His feet hit the ground and he had socks. All he had on was socks. And his socks slipped like this. Now I want you to picture this. His feet land, he lands like this, but his socks slip back. So he goes, boop. Just like that. That's the next sound you hear. Now, now that you all know when they do those really good ones, you don't hear the cry initially because the mouth is open. 
But there's no sound coming out at all. And I think he held his breath like that for 10, 15 minutes. I'd pick him up and his, his poor little nose was all over his face. So we end up, we spend a day in the emergency room instead of at church. But all that is a parable to illustrate. I knew what he was going to do. But I wouldn't make the choice for him. By not creating him, by, by not having him, I made the choice for him. There can be no love without choice. Period. So there has to be choice. God's all love. There has to be choice. God created Pharaoh. Pharaoh had the opportunity. God in his foreknowledge knew what Pharaoh would do. But he still gave Pharaoh the opportunity to harden his heart before God confirmed his choice. With every human being on the face of the earth. And as we study through this scripture today, we're going to see that many are called. But few are chosen. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So who did he give his only begotten son to? The world, everyone. Who's the call go out? What's the invitation to? The invitation is to the whole world. Many are called. But few are chosen. We'll see as we go through scripture exactly what the Lord means as we go through that. But look, again, I don't want to, I'm racing the clock. I want you guys to have lunch today and not wait till dinner. So we're going to go just a little bit more in chapter 9 of Romans. He goes on and says, now, you ask the question, who are you? Then in verse 20, but indeed, O man, the answer, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Every one of us has said this in the mirror. We act like these questions are not questions we ask. What do you mean? When I look in the mirror, if I had, if I'm a woman, (laughs) I'm not, but if I was, if I had curly hair and I looked in the mirror, I would say, God, why didn't you give me straight hair? If I had straight hair, I would look in a mirror and say, God, why didn't you give me curly hair? If I'm a, a man, I look in a mirror and I say, Lord, man, I look good. <laughs> I'm just being honest. You guys know very well, every man walk by, Looks in the mirror. He looks over at it. Now, the profile may look like this. More like Buddha than what he was at one time. But when he looks at the mirror, he just sucks it in a little bit. Oh, yeah, I still look pretty good. Now, men have issues of pride. But why have you made me like this? Why have you made me stubborn? Why have you made me prideful? Why have you made me this way or that way? Who are we to say to God who's sovereign over all and does right? Who are we to say, why have you made me like this? Why have you done this? We cannot fathom the depths of God's understanding. The question is, will you choose to trust him? Will you choose to trust him? The God who is sovereign, the God who is in control, the God who is all powerful. Listen, does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make a vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Now don't read too much into that. This is what it means. 
to make an, a, a vessel for honor, think of it like famous, and a vessel for dishonor, common. Something fancy, something common. God can make, you, you live in the United States, the greatest uh, country on the face of the earth in terms of the things that we have, or he could have you born in the jungle where you don't have nothing. But it's him, he who gets to make that choice of where you'll be. He goes on, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now listen, there says right up there, when you come to church, turn off your cell phone. You got to ask yourself, who doesn't know what Jackie's doing right now? (laughs) The devil is on us today, but we're not going to let him win. Okay, so he goes on. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of the glory of his mercy that he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, we, the called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. Listen, do you hear what he's saying there? He says, what if God, in his wrath, he knows the choices that these other people are going to make, but he allows them to continue just so he can show you mercy. Just so he can show his love to you. He won't make their choice for them. He won't force them to do anything against their will. He just is long-suffering. Now, if he had prepared them for destruction and that was all they were going to ever be, why would he endure with long-suffering? I wouldn't care. They're just supposed to be that way. You would never say that I was enduring with you with long-suffering. God endures with long-suffering because... Many are called. The invitation is there. The scripture lays out for us in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. All day long I lift out my hands to a people who are obstinate and disobedient. That means God all day long reaches out his hands to people who slap them away. All day. If God didn't care, if he was not omnibenevolent, if he was not all love, he wouldn't do it. But he is. And that's what the scripture is declaring to us. That's what it's declaring to us. And when we look in chapter 20 of Matthew, and we see him over and over and over again, what does he say? In accordance with this is my vineyard, and we made a deal, the first group. But listen, now everybody else after that, what did he say? I'll do what's right. I'll do what's right. I'll do what's right. I'll do what's right. Do you believe that God will do what's right? Because that's what he's teaching us. That's what he's telling us. But listen, Jackie, I don't know. This is Matthew. Well, just in case we're not really sure about God doing right, go with me to Genesis because that's the book of beginnings. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, just to kind of catch you up on what's going on. Abraham, his, his uh, nephew Lot has been uh, living over in Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad place. Not a great place to set up house. And as he's living over there in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham hanging out outside one day, he sees these strangers walking. And he notices something special about the strangers. And hospitality was a very important thing in Middle Eastern culture. (coughs) Excuse me. So he calls them over. 
The next thing he knows, God and a couple of angels are sitting down and having dinner with him. And when I say God, know that the scripture declares to us, no man has seen God at any time and lives. So when we see God, who do we see? Jesus Christ. When the scripture says, no man has seen God at any time, we're talking about the Father. The Father is invisible. He is over all. The Son is God visible. Don't trip. Just buy it. That's what the word says. So he's sitting there and he comes to eat. And they have the discussion. You guys remember the discussion? Lord, will you destroy the city? If, will you destroy the wicked with the righteous? Well, this is what he said in, 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 in Genesis 18.25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what? What is right? If God is something, he is all of that. If God is love, he's all love. If God is sovereign, he's all sovereign. If God is good, he's all good. In him is no shadow, no darkness, no shadow of turning. Nothing within God that is dark or evil in any sense of the word. For God is ultimately and completely good. So whatever God does, he will do right Psalm 145 tells us in verse 17, The Lord is right in all his ways. He is righteous, gracious in all his works. Listen, God has never done anything wrong. Are we ready to say that's true? Well, that's where we got to come. Wrapping our minds around it. It's not easy, but it's good. Not easy, but it's good. In philosophy, we would say that he has an a priori right, for there was no competition on the day that he created. It was only him. He has a right to do. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that what he wrote in Romans 8.28? Does that mean only some things? Listen, the very first lesson in the day one when you go into Greek class. Day one first lesson is, in Greek, all means all and that's all that all means. It's the only thing I remember from Greek. But I remember that. In Greek, all means all, and that's all all means. Remember that. That all will never mean some. It will always mean all. All things work together for good. Now, we can see it in the story. Listen, I want you to see it in the story. So, in Matthew chapter 20, he says, look at verse 1. Verse 1. Now, we've seen the sovereignty of God. He has a right to do whatever he wants to do. He owns everything, and he will always do right. The second thing I want you to see is that God is seeking He is seeking. Look in verse 1. What's it say? For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who did what? Who went out early. Who was looking? God was looking. He was seeking. He was looking for laborers. He was looking for men and women. Nothing has changed. He's still looking today. Did he only look in the first hour? No, he didn't. He came back at 9 o'clock. He came back at noon. He came back at 3. He came back at 5. Seeking. 
Seeking, seeking over and over and over again. What do you see in that? Not only is God sovereign, not only is God in control, but he is omnibenevolent. He is all love. He is so much love that he is always, always, always seeking who will be saved. Always seeking. All the time looking. All the time reaching out. Listen, the gospel is not man seeking God. The gospel is God seeking man. That God is looking for us. The seeking of God is it's so steeped in Scripture. In fact, just turn to the right from Matthew to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, I like to go there because everything we need is in one chapter. So I won't have to dance too far. Luke chapter 15 tells us three stories. What are the three stories? It's about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And what is it that the Lord says in those? In in Luke chapter 15, beginning around verse 4, it says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, will not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost until he, what? Finds it. What's he talking about? Seeking. Seeking and finding, reaching out, holding his arms out all day long to a contrary people. For many are called. He's laying it out and says when he found it, he lays his hands on it. Man, he's stoked. He's happy. He puts it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Man, he's stoked. You hear the joy in his voice? The second story is the story of the lost coin. It says a woman, in verse 8, a woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not, light a, or <clears throat> does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until what? She has found it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice, I found the piece that was lost. The very next verse, verse 10, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's the story about? God seeking and finding. That he's seeking. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he is in control. Yes, he has a right to do whatever he wants because he created all things. But he is also all loving and always reaching out to save. For he is mighty to save. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is mighty to save? Man, it's, it's, in, it's just so important that we can really grasp it. Why? Because in Luke 19, he said, at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, remember we told the story of Zacchaeus? I think I did that last week, right? And I made no reference to Fritz at all. <laughs> I just want to make notice I made no reference. <clears throat> Maybe I just lost that now. <sighs> Sorry, brother. <clears throat> But at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, this is what it says. For the Son of Man has come to what? To seek and to save that which is lost. What's the Son doing? Seeking. Well, what about John chapter 4? Remember Jesus, he meets a woman at the well. He goes out of his way to Samaria. And he meets this woman at the well. And he's talking to her and having this conversation. They're talking about worship. You remember what Jesus said? In John chapter 4, verse 23, he said, But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Remember what it says next? For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So as the call goes out, 
God doesn't just go out on the first hour. He goes out the next hour and the next hour and the next hour. And he continues to go out because God is always seeking. That's another thing that the scripture is laying out for us. He's always, always seeking. And in the seeking of God, what else do we see? We see that the opportunity for salvation is still available even at the 11th hour. Even right up to the end, the opportunity is always there. He never withholds that opportunity. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says... For he has said, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. For many are called. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The idea is, is not that we're out looking for God, but that when God is there looking for people, man, reach out and take the offer. Don't wait another day. Take that salvation that God is offering. Grab what it is that he is giving. For all day long, he stretches out his hands. I, every time I read that scripture, I'm blown away the same way. How long will you lift out your hands to someone who slaps it away? I can tell you how long. Uh, about a second. I know it will be hard for you to believe, but one time I was an honorary cuss. <clears throat> I know I, I come across so omnibenevolent today, huh? <laughs> and I was broke down one time. I'll never forget it. I was such a bonehead. But I broke down one time and I, I'm stuck in a stupid truck, a work truck, sweating. I can't do the job, can't do nothing because I'm broke down, so I'm, I'm irritated. And I just know that the owner of the place where I'm broke down at any day is going to come out and say, what in the world is your dumb truck doing in my parking lot? And sure enough, he come out. Only, it was different than that. It wasn't exactly how I heard it in my head. See, I was ready for him to come out and say, what are you doing here? But I think what he actually said was, can I help you? Do you need a hand? The truck broke down. And I responded to him like he said, what in the world are you doing out here? Do you know how long he offered that offer of help? Just long enough for me to be dumb. And then he turned around and, I, and then it's like, oh, as he's walking away, I'm like, sorry. I won't tell you what he said, but I don't think he forgave me. But the scripture says all day long, God reaches out his hand. To an obstinate and disobedient people all day long. He never stops. The offer for salvation is always, always there. He offers it to everyone. We go back to Matthew chapter 20. Look at it. It says, when he went out early and he's looking for workers, he wants to have workers that come into his field. It says in verse 3, on the third hour he went out and what? Saw others. Man, whoever was out there standing, he gave the offer to. Do we all agree with that in this story? There was never somebody in the story he saw and said no. Was there? No. By, by golly, it seems every time he sees somebody, he offers them the same deal. Because many are called. They're called. The call goes out to them all. Everyone has the offer. In verse 6, at the 11th hour, he went out and still found others. 
Now, don't trip over the idea where they, it says they were standing idle. It doesn't mean that they were playing Xbox and not looking for a job. They were on the corner. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. It's super important to the concept of the story. And that is this. If you were the guy going out to hire people, who's the first group of people that gets in a truck? The dudes who can move fast, who still are strong, jump right up in the truck. The old decrepit guys, that it takes them a while to get up. By the time they got up and walked to the truck, it's already got eight guys in it. And they drove off. So the old, the sick, the weak, they're left on the corner. And nobody really cares to come hire them. Except for Jesus. Because he keeps going back to finding the ones that nobody else would take. Welcome to the church of the ones nobody else would take. (laughs) If you're proud, that doesn't comfort you. (laughs) If you're not, it should. Hey, man, I am a trophy of grace. It had nothing to do with me. It's everything about him. He came to the corner. I couldn't get in in any other truck. All I could do was him. That's the only way. The only road to salvation is through him. I couldn't trust in my own strength, my own ability, just his. It's the weak. It's the sick. It's the ones nobody wants. Those are the ones that are left. And he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things which are, that no flesh would glory in his presence. Just last week the Lord was saying, it's impossible for a rich man to get in heaven. Why? Because rich men, rich men like us, all of us here, we struggle with the idea of, of, of self we can do it ourselves. I can solve it myself. I don't need anybody's help. It's me, 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 me. And we get so hung up in self that we forget that no flesh will glory in his presence. It will never be any work that God ever did based on a man. Ever. Never. Not a one. God used boneheads. You get a, get a book on all the old godly dead guys and read it. D.L. Moody. They said that guy could barely speak. But people get saved like crazy. How come? Because, well, he was just an amazing... They had nothing to do with him. He's a puppet. He He gave himself to God, body and soul, everything that he was. And he said, use me. Anyone in here can do that. Jesus said last time, the disciples said, Oh, who can be saved then if the rich can't be saved? You remember what Jesus said? With man, it is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible because 1 Corinthians goes on to say, not many rich are called. Didn't say not any. Said not many strong. But some strong are called. The invitation goes out to whosoever will. Whoever will grab a hold of what it is that God has for them. But the last thing I I want you to really see in this parable is it also shows this big struggle that we have. And that is with the selfishness of man. The selfishness of man. Look at this parable. It says, so 
In verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. What did Jesus say? For many who are first will be, and the last, first. Oh, so he starts with the last of the first. And when they came who were hired the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. Man, that's, do we agree that's more than they deserve? They only worked an hour, but they got a day's wage. They worked an hour, got a day's wage, but... The first saw it. What is the first thing we see the selfish miss of man? And what they expected. Why did they expect to get more? They saw the goodness of the landowner. And they expected that then that meant that they deserved, mandated that they should get more. They're the only ones that had an agreement with him. That agreement was day's work for a day's pay. So the first issue is in their expectancy. They supposed that they should receive more. Our selfishness is often seen in what we expect. What we expect we ought to receive. The next thing we see in the selfishness is how they express their feelings. Listen, in verse 11 it says, And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner. The word in the Greek is kind of a cool word. It's a somewhat fun word to say. It's gogudzo. Go goodzo. Just sounds like something you don't want to be, right? <clears throat> Go goodzo means to murmur, to grumble. It's used eight times in the Bible. Let me share some of them with you. Luke 5.30, And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Murmuring, complaining, go goodzo. Why are you hanging out with those people? What do they deserve? And I want you to also understand this. When the Bible says tax collectors and sinners, understand what he's talking about. Tax collectors were traitors to the country. And sinners in a noun form always referred to sexual immorality. Prostitutes and tax collectors. They had a problem with God offering salvation to them. So they murmured. In Luke 15, 1 and 2, Then the tax collectors and sinners drew new to him <clears throat> to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained and said, This man receives sinners, even eats with them. They complained, go goodzo. They murmured. They're griping about what? God's offering of salvation to someone they deemed unworthy. It's only used eight times. We go on again in 1 Corinthians 10.10. Nor should you complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. What was the complaining they were doing in that case? The gogudzo. He's talking about the children of Israel. They were complaining about God's provision. All he gives us is manna to eat. Boy, you got something to eat, don't you? Complaining about God's provision. Complaining. But it's not only seen in what they expected or how they expressed it, but also in what they said, how they explained it. Is it not lawful? Listen to what God said. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? So is your eye evil because I am good? The NIV says it like this. The NIV says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? I like that. Are you envious because I'm generous? 
Are you envious about what I'm offering? And remember, we started at the end of chapter 19. The first will be last. The last will be first. We move through this concept telling us about the first being last and the last being first. And God constantly reaching out, even in his sovereignty, to bring people uh, into salvation. But here's what we got to understand. Your salvation is equal no matter when you received it. It's a tough one for us to buy. If you have been saved for 30 years, I want you to understand, you are no more righteous than a guy who gets saved today. Because uh, it's not your righteousness in the first place. It's his, God's. He gave it to you. We're not more saved than we were. We're just saved. We're just standing in that place in Christ. Not more righteous today than when we first believed. For righteousness we have comes from him, not from us. It's all about Jesus. Listen, in Matthew chapter 8, remember this. We studied it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then I say to you, many will come from the east and the west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first can be last. Here the, pro, here, the, here the Pharisees are complaining. Oh, you're hanging out with sinners. You're hanging out with tax collectors and traitors and lowlifes and people who don't deserve salvation. And all the while, the Lord is saying many are going to come from east and west. And they're going to enter into salvation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the fathers of the nation of Israel. But Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, says, but you will be outside You're outside because you're trusted in yourself. And you won't take the offer that God has before you. You won't receive. To as many as received, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Even to those who what? Believed on his name. To them gave he the power. Listen, Matthew 21 I know I'm jumping ahead, but I just want to share this with you guys real quick and hopefully grab some of the concept. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I won't. But afterward, he regretted the answer and went. Then he came to the second son and he said, I will go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, they answered to him and said, the first. So Jesus said, listen, assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you would not repent. Jesus is saying, first and last, these people who think they have it don't have it. But these people who are lowly that nobody cares about and nobody thinks about, they're willing to come and repent and lay it all down at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And the Lord says, they made it. <clears throat> they made it. They received the gift. They've come in. They've entered in. For many are called and few are chosen. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. Maybe most of you guys never struggle with this. But I don't like that phrase. Many are called, but few are chosen. Makes you think that God is choosing. Well, he is sort of. I want you to get the, the grasp of what he's doing. And again, 
I don't want to get too much into textual criticism, but there are probably a note in your Bible, if you have NASB or NIV, that says, uh, many are, are called and few are chosen shouldn't be in this verse. I don't even want to argue it because they say it again in the next chapter and they all agree with it there. So the point is, it's in the Bible. Many are called, few are chosen. And so I did a bunch of research and I looked into it. And listen, this is what he's saying. Many are called. The call of salvation goes out to everyone, whosoever will. But then when he says many are chosen, he uses the word elkotai. It's a, it's a, it means the elect. That many are called, but few become saved. That's what he's saying. Many are called, but few receive salvation. Many are called, but few become the elect. How do we become the elect? We become the elect by putting our faith in Him. And you're elect. And when you find out you're elect, you realize you're elect from the foundation of the world. Which is kind of confusing, but the concept is still the same. You become elect at the point when you receive, you become elect in your own mind. God knew you were going to make that choice all along. All along. So He says, many are called and few are chosen. That word chosen simply means saved why are there some who aren't because like pharaoh god allows them to make their choice he does not make their choice for them because you know the scripture says that the lord desires none would perish how many would that be the Lord desires none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. How many is that? You remember the lesson in Greek? All means all, and that's all that all means. Huh. So the Lord desires that none would perish, but he endures with long-suffering vessels prepared for wrath. People who have already been neglected to receive the free gift of God, to receive salvation, he endures with them with long-suffering so that he can be merciful to you and me and anyone else who will receive. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Period. And this morning... There are people here that God already knows you're going to be saved. But you have never made a decision to say, I receive the gift that Jesus Christ is offering. You never made the decision to stand up and say, I am one of those tax collectors and sinners. I am one of the lowlifes. I need salvation i need forgiveness i need a right relationship with god god knows you're going to make the decision so stop waiting and make it for crying out loud give your life to jesus what do you hold on to it so tight for jesus says anyone who holds on to his life will what lose it but if you give your life away to him what happens you'll find it what does that mean? That means I spend my whole life living and chasing dreams that are just outside my grasp. If I don't accept or receive the dreams that I have in my life by presenting my heart and body and soul to Jesus Christ and receiving salvation, and I achieve my dreams apart from that, I will never be happy. I will get there and say, I thought there was so much more to this. I will crawl lonely into the, uh, a bathtub in a hotel room with just me and a shotgun. 
or I'll drown my sorrows in alcohol, or I'll abuse my body in drugs, because I reached my dreams and I'm still not happy because God's not there with me. When God offered to the children of Israel the land and all the stuff they ever wanted, He said, you can have it all. I'll give it all to you, but I will not be there. The one thing the children of Israel did right their whole life, they said, if you're not there, we don't want it. The primary thing we need, every single one of us, primary thing we need is Jesus Christ in our life. Me surrendered for me and receiving the free gift that he has. Fritz is going to come up. He's going to lead us in a song. We don't do it often. but Maybe we don't do it enough. We're going to have a time of invitation as he comes up. Well, everybody can come up. You guys don't have to be afraid. <coughs> <laughs> We're going to do a song of invitation. And while we do the song of invitation, I just want you to think. This is what's happening. Just like the Word of God says, the Lord is reaching out His hands for whoever, whosoever would. You, you don't know the Lord. You've never given your life to Him. If you have given your life to Him and you need to rededicate your life, we'll have an opportunity to do that in the close. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, never surrendered to Him, never said, you are the Lord of my life. And I put my faith and trust in you. Forgive me of my sins and set me free. That's what this is for. So as we sing this song, I encourage you. If you're a believer in here and you're not praying for somebody who's not saved to come up, you're not doing your job. So start doing your job. Start praying that God will move. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, God already knows you're supposed to do it. So stop waiting and get it done. Jesus, Redeemer, friend and king to me, my refuge, my comfort, everything to me. This heart is on fire for you. This heart is on fire for you. You alone are wonderful. You alone are counselor, everlasting father, mighty in the heavens, never to forget the